there is a story, perhaps apocryphal, that when Perry Maxwell designed world-renowned prairie dunes, he disappeared into the 480 acres of central Kansas sand dunes and scrub with only a sack of apples re-emerging much later to pronounce. There are 118 holes of golf here. All I have to do is eliminate 100. Yet the story shows Maxwell's appetite for exploration, his enormous imagination, and inspired use of landforms and varied terrain, all qualities that helped him transform Oklahoma hills and dales into some of the nation's finest golf courses. Although our state is blessed to have courses by A.W. Tillinghast, Tom Fazio, Robert Trent Jones Jr., and other greats of the genre, the work of this unassuming Ardmore banker overshadows all others. From Dornick Hills to Twin Hills to Southern Hills, golfers throughout Oklahoma are thankful for the wonders Perry Maxwell performed. Welcome back to the You're Still Out Golf podcast and the first in a podcast series focused on legendary Oklahoma golf course architect, Mr. Perry Maxwell. As surely you know by now, Maxwell Masterpiece Southern Hills Country Club is hosting the 2022 PGA Championship in Tulsa, so what better timing to shine a light on the courses created by the man known as the father of Oklahoma golf. We are calling this series Miles of Maxwell in partnership with local golf course architect Colton Craig, who has written a book of the same name. Colton's book will be released later this summer, and your Still Out listeners will be the first to know how to obtain a copy. Thanks to Colton for partnering with us on this series. Appropriately enough, this first episode of Miles of Maxwell features Dornick Hills Golf and Country Club via an interview with head professional Derek Claiborne and Superintendent Brent Waite. We hope you enjoy this Miles of Maxwell series and it adds to your excitement for the PGA Championship along with your knowledge and appreciation of a true Oklahoma golf legend. All right, ladies and gentlemen, joined by a couple of very special guests here on this very special episode of the YSO podcast, joined by a couple of guys from Dornick Hills Country Club down in Ardmore, Derek Claiborne, the head professional, and then Brent Waite, the superintendent. Uh, Derek, introduce yourself first or, or, or say hello so we can we can identify you. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I've uh, been wanting to, to get on here and kind of talk about what we've been doing here at Dornick Hills and everything that Brent and uh, Mr. Doke have been able to do to the course and uh, take it back to, we'll talk about all that here shortly, I'm sure, but take it back to what Perry wanted. So I'm uh, thankful to be on here with you guys. Awesome. Uh, what about you, Brent? Yeah, thanks for having us on. Um, it's been an exciting couple of years up here, getting all this sorted out and kind of paying homage to Perry Maxwell and golf in general. So Awesome. Well, uh, I'm sure our listeners can maybe hear a little bit of that beautiful background noise. We're not piping that in. Maybe uh, this is a little bit off of our questions list, but give us your, uh, Derek, give us your exact location as you're, you're yeah. uh, on, on the horn with us here. We are just to the north of our 7th Fairway, and we are at the Maxwell Family Cemetery. So we are uh, setting together on a bench overlooking Mr. Maxwell's headstone right now. So a uh, pretty cool spot. It's not blowing 100 miles an hour today, which is nice. Um, just kind of secretly watching the golfers. They probably don't see us up here. So. <laughs> uh, 
but uh cool a really cool spot so okay well you know one of the you know questions that we always like to ask our guests whenever we bring them in here is uh, you know kind of what 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 got you into the game of golf at first and then you know kind of what led you to Dorney Kills but uh Derek let's start with you bud so kind of give us a little bit of your history and background and uh, what led you to Dorney Yes, yeah, so I uh, I was a baseball player when I was younger. Nobody in my family really plays golf. Well, I have a great uncle that plays golf. That's the only person in my family that plays. Um, had a, a kid that lived in my neighborhood, and his dad happened to be the, the golf pro there at Seminoles Municipal Course. And so in the summer, we just kind of started playing golf. Um, just kind of got hooked on it and quit baseball and I guess, middle school and started playing golf. And, of course, you guys know how that is. You get your little circle of friends and just kind of grow up together playing golf. And so I was either 15 or 16, started working at the course, just watering greens. And the uh, big thing then was you could get free golf carts to play in when you're 16, if you work there. So we all wanted to work there and uh, just kind of went from there. Played, uh, played two years at, at Seminole state college, junior college there in Seminole. Um, and then finished college at East central and Ada my uh, last semester of college I started working as an assistant pro for Steve Ramsey here at Dornick Hills. Um, so I was working kind of maintenance at Seminole and working in the pro shop and wanted to kind of get into it full time and um, had class Tuesday, Thursday and worked the rest of the week and uh, just kind of went from there. So I was here uh, from 2007 to about 2010, I believe it was. And then I worked in Oklahoma City for a few years and became the, the head pro at Shawnee Country Club. I was there for about four and a half years. And then my uh, my old boss, Steve Ramsey, left and went to the Tulsa area. And I uh, came back here to Ardmore. So I've been here since September of 2017. Um, so that's kind of how I got got going in the game of golf and just i've never never worked a job that was outside of golf so that's kind of unique um that's, that's pretty awesome so, <laughs> i like that yeah, so i don't have many options at this point i guess <laughs> good stuff good stuff well brent what about you bud so let's give us a, a little bit of your history and background yeah so i too have hardly ever worked outside of the golf industry um i played a little bit as a young kid with my dad and brothers um maybe a couple of times a year and always enjoyed it. We'd go to the driving range all the time. But when I was getting into being a teenager, I had a brother that was working at the local golf course near our home in Maryland, where I grew up, um, it's Bay Hills golf club there in Arnold, Maryland. And when I turned 16, I applied to be a cart kid, so to speak. And uh, I did that for a season, and the next season, the superintendent came up to me and asked me if I wanted to work in maintenance, and I'd always see those guys out there, and it looked like a lot of fun, so I joined up with them the following year and did that for a few years before I finally decided to uh, go to college uh, for agronomy, and I went to University of Maryland and graduated in 2014 and went out to TPC Las Vegas after that as an assistant superintendent. Stayed out there for about a year. Because one of the things my advisor told me in school, he suggested, if I can, go and get experience in different climates with different types of turf grasses and soils. And that's what I did. Then I ultimately found myself in Dallas, Texas at Ventry Country Club. 
stayed there for close to four years and did a brief stint at another club down there before um, Dorna Kills opened up. And I've always been a fan of golf course architecture in general. And I knew who Perry Maxwell was and a lot of the courses that he had done. So I inquired about it and here I am. Well, let's get into some of that Perry Maxwell conversation. Derek, I think, you know, most everybody knows that uh, Dornick Hills was Perry's first golf course design, uh, but perhaps not everybody. Uh, you know, what year did he uh, originally um, start the golf course? Um, kind of talk about its humble beginnings and then walk us through to its kind of ultimate full completion uh, in, in terms of Perry's stamp on it. Okay. Yeah. And, and Brent may want to jump in here on certain points, but, um, so basically kind of unique. It started as a dairy farm. Uh, Mr. Maxwell got received an article on the national golf leaks of America. That was in a, it was a magazine article kind of inspired him that, Hey, maybe I could put some golf holes out here. So he actually had four holes laid out on the golf course. So, kind of unique that it started that way um and those holes were were actually kind of still here today 10 11 12 and part of hole 16 it didn't didn't go up the cliff um kind of went from 16's t generally or in the general vicinity of where it is now kind of over to the right against that tree line so a little four hole course all par fours which was interesting um they incorporated it it was actually ardmore country club to begin with for maybe just a few months, but so they incorporated Dorna Kills in 1914, you know, got membership, people paying dues, made plans to expand the course. The east side of the property was a poor farm, which is where if you were on welfare, you could go grow your own crops, grow your own hmm. food. That that land was purchased by the club for, it was like ridiculously low amount of money compared to today's money. But uh, so they expanded it into 18 holes. Um, so and then they eventually switched the nines. So at one point, the, the current back nine was the front nine. So that's kind of unique. Also, nines were switched. So interesting thing about Maxwell, he was he was a banker. So he worked at American National Bank here in uh, in Ardmore. Um, hopefully, that's correct, hopefully. Um, he was vice president there. Uh, he grew up in Kentucky. So kind of interesting that he ended up in, in southern Oklahoma of all places but he was a tennis player you know as he got older tennis was obviously tougher than golf to do um so he he wanted to kind of transition into something he could use as a hobby but not be so hard on his body so that's kind of where the the magazine article that his wife provided to him came from and so he just kind of went from there and then it just kind of all developed from that point so he started kind of studying um, he went to Scotland 1919, I believe it was, went over to Scotland, studied courses, met Alistair McKenzie there. And I, I had read that he communicated with C.B. McDonald, who, who built National Golf Links at some point, too. So he kind of had some input from some influential designers. So McKenzie, later on, I think it was in maybe the 20s, because I, I know Alistair McKenzie visited Ardmore and Dornick Hills in the 20s, kind of the late 20s, met with Maxwell, and then at some point they became business partners. And so, of course, like Crystal Downs and some Oklahoma City Golf and Country Club, some of these really well-known places that they they collaborated on together. And that's really what spurred Maxwell's career is hooking up with this guy who 
was famous, you know, with this guy, with Maxwell, who's just basically building courses on farmland in southern Oklahoma and just had a great eye for it. Well, and that was a kind of a follow-up question is what, what about that experience of, you know, creating Dornick Hills led him to ultimately pursue uh, what ended up being such a prolific design career. So maybe, yeah, press in a little deeper on kind of where, where things went from there. Yeah, so he, I'm, I'm sure you guys have probably read the book, The Midwest Associate, which really goes in deep on, uh, it's a Chris Clouser book, but goes in deep on how he developed that relationship with McKenzie and then eventually started working with him on all these different properties across the Midwest and even some East Coast, you know. Um, did McKenzie, Brent may know better than on this, but Old Town Club was McKenzie in on that, you know, further uh, East Coast or... That may have been later on because I know McKenzie passed away, I think in the thirties. So they just didn't work together for a real long period of time. But, um, you know, kind of like with Tom to go into Tom Doak, you know, he's got several associates under him, kind of that same relationship where he trusts them to, to see, see what he sees almost when they go and build courses. So, um, so you really have to trust somebody to, to put your name on it and allow them to do the work and things like that. Maxwell just had a really good natural eye for it, which is pretty rare seeing as he wasn't, you know, didn't grow up really playing golf. It's pretty amazing that he could have an eye for it and look at a piece of land and develop golf holes on it. Um, but yeah, that that's really what spurred his career was that, that relationship with McKenzie, um, you know, and got him on to, to Augusta national where McKenzie worked with Bobby Jones and, and, Maxwell was able to come in and help a little bit on some greens. And I don't know how extensive that work was, but he certainly touched those greens, which is pretty amazing in itself. Well, and to think of all the places that he did touch, uh, linking back, you know, to, to starting it all right there in Ardmore, Oklahoma is, is quite a, quite a story to be told. No doubt about it. Well, well, Brent, you know, maybe this is a question that that's geared towards you here uh, in your role. But you know, we'll we'll get into the recent changes that that Mr. Doak uh, put in with the restoration. But uh, you know, from the time Maxwell died up through recently, you know, what are what are perhaps some of the bigger changes or improvements to the course in between when it was originally created and then whenever Mr. Doak did his re- restoration? There are several kind of different stages. I've heard of a lot of stuff being done in the 50s and 60s, and I'm not, I don't know if anybody's really totally clear on everything that was done there. There's not a whole lot of actual records that we have, which made it difficult for for Tom Doak to come in and put everything back the way that it was exactly. So essentially what he did was just use Maxwell's philosophies on so we have Maxwell-like greens, but they may not be exactly what was here back then. But some of the big changes occurred in the 80s and 90s. In the mid-80s, they renovated the front nine, and they rerouted number one and number two to make room for a driving range, which was probably fine back then when people weren't hitting, flying the ball 300 and. 30 yards in the air <laughs> but there are some houses that border the driving range currently and it's just not long enough anymore one thing we wanted to do was restore those holes because we felt it was important to do that 
the number one hole that was here it wasn't a, it wasn't a bad hole it was it was a very difficult starting hole and anywhere else on the golf course you know it would have been just fine but the, the real kicker was getting number two restored because I, I think it's one of the best par threes out here or in the state wherever getting that back was important so we had we've shortened our range just have a limited limited range right now but all the bunkers and greens they weren't they weren't even close to what was here they had been softened and they had some internal contours in them but they were basically you know flat and then the contour and then flat and that's not how Maxwell built greens. Maxwell basically laid the green on the land that was there. So whichever whichever way the land was pitching, that's that's the way the green was going to pitch. And he would build up, you know, one side of them to make enough room for another pin, which I guess those have been coined Maxwell rolls. And we've got a couple good ones out here now, number three and 15. Um, and then in the early 90s, the back nine was redone and the, the biggest change that they did was they built up a lot of mounds around the greens, almost as catcher's mitts, so to speak, to save balls from rolling very far away from the greens. And they, they built a lake on number 17, which was very pretty. <laughs> Nobody's arguing that, <laughs> but it, it wasn't original and w- we feel like the reason that they built it was they, when they rebuilt 8T, they disrupted the natural drainage of that land. So we're thinking that land, it was probably always wet down there. So they decided the best thing to do was put a lake in at the time. But since we've restored all of those natural drainage tributaries and ditches and everything to kind of, you know, have Mother Nature help us in draining the property as much as possible, which is something that Maxwell did a lot. He paid a lot of attention to how water moved through a property. Well, that's a great understanding of, of some changes that were made, you know, post post Perry and pre Doak. And I know that I know that uh, definitely chomping at the bit to hear about some of the the Doak renovations. I, I do have I have one question before we get there, um, and. I suppose either of you can take this, but maybe maybe Brent chime back in. For those who have never played it, can you just kind of describe the famous cliff hole uh, that is now uh, number 16 at Dornick? Uh, you mentioned earlier that it wasn't necessarily one of the original first four holes, but if you can, to describe that hole uh, for folks and then maybe just historically how it became what it was in terms of that, that uh, layout. So it's a par five, plays around 530 yards today. Uh, it probably was a little bit shorter back then. So when you're standing on the tee box, and this, this wasn't true a couple of years ago because so many trees had been planted on this property that you couldn't see just to the next hole. And on, in some cases, and 16's one of them, you could barely even see any of the fairway from the tee. But now, since we've cleared all that out, you, know, you can see much of the cliff as you're standing on the tee. That's not the first place you see it either. You see it when you're 
you can see it teeing off on one. You can see it coming around seven, see it teeing off on 10. So you, it's kind of just looming over your round the entire time. And when you finally get there, it's kind of like a crescendo, so to speak. There are two large bunkers that are kind of in between 15 and 16 fairway, which is, is going to be one large fairway. So you can play many different angles into it. In a south wind, big hitters can get to those bunkers. So that's going to be something they're going to have to think about off the tee. But the big thing is your approach shot into that green. If you're 120 yards out, I mean, it's a 45-foot, you know, elevated green. You can see just barely one corner of the green from down there. And if you're too close to the cliff, a lot of times you can't even see the pan. Um, it's a very intimidating hole. It can be played many different ways. A lot of the big hitters like to try to get up into, which is very difficult unless you have a, a really favorable wind. A lot of the shorter hitters, they'll lay up and hit their try to hit their third shot up there. The green slopes into you in the front half and a, kind of away from you on the back half. And then behind the green, it just falls off the land down to the fence line, which is out of bounds. It's another person's property back there. But it's it's a really cool hole, kind of special. Yeah, I think, you know, Having the good fortune to play golf in a lot of places around uh, the United States, um, it's definitely in the, like the top three most unique holes uh, that I've ever played. Uh, so thanks for breaking that down. And yeah, folks, when they play it for the first time, I think are definitely in awe. Um, all right, Derek, let's get deep into the golf course and the, uh, the rest ovation as I uh, have it down here in my notes, uh, by Mr. Doak. For those who haven't heard the story, you know, how did such a world renowned architect come to be involved in the project? I adore it. Yeah. So pretty cool backstory to it really that probably a lot of people haven't heard. So I'm glad you, you asked that question. Um, I think Brent had probably been here for what a year or so at this point, close to it, but they, so the big thing we, we lacked was an irrigate, a good irrigation system. Ours was what, 60 years old. They didn't manufacture parts for it anymore. It was an old hydraulic system. So like Brent and his crew spent a large part of their time repairing irrigation which was obviously hard to do seeing as how you couldn't even get parts for it. But um, that took up a lot of time. It wasn't very efficient. Brent could probably go into hour long <laughs> podcast about the old irrigation system <laughs> if he needed to, but um, they wanted to, they were, the board kind of wanted to just work quietly behind the scenes and kind of look at some options, you know, whether, we could have some members maybe donate money. We, we weren't in a position where we wanted to take out a million dollar loan to replace an irrigation system. You know, something that you're probably not, it's something you have to have, but you're probably not going to see a big return on investment on something like that. It's just something that you're, you're supposed to have. Um, so our vice president, his name is Joe Ward. 
he was talking to another member and, and Joe has some experience. He went to turf school, I believe at OSU. He worked as an assistant superintendent uh, at a few different places, I believe. And um, he's in the oil business now, but still, you know, kind of in the know on, on what's going on in the golf course and everything like that. But he, he was talking to one of our members and, and this member said, well, have you ever thought about just doing a renovation or a restoration of the golf course in conjunction with the irrigation system? And Joe's like, well, that would be awesome. But, you know, is that going to cost $20 million or, you know, we don't, we don't have just millions of dollars sitting around to spend. And so anyway, this, this member, um, Mr. Westheimer is his name. And he's actually a, a relative by marriage of Perry Maxwell. So kind of a cool backstory on that. But um, he reached Joe had reached out to Tom Doak just via email, you know, not really, expecting or you know not really expecting a quick response and and you guys have probably read that at a few different places mr doke had said that he would would repair the you know renovate rest restorate whatever you want to call it the damage that was done in the 80s you know he'd do that pro bono so we didn't really know what that meant was that going to be 50 million dollars or two million dollars or what Anyway, we wanted to check it out and see, and I think it was the next day, Joe gets a call while he's playing golf from Michigan, and it's, he's like, hey, this is Tom Doak. I'm going to be in Colorado in a couple weeks. Love to come visit with you. So me and Bren are like, holy hell, Tom wow. Doak's going to be, you know what I mean? We're like, this is crazy. Cool. And at that time, we're thinking like, dude, wouldn't that be cool if Tom Doak actually worked on this course? You know, we didn't really think it's something that's, you know, it's probably a 5% chance something like that's going to happen. But so the, he kind of looked at the course. I think he was here for a couple of days. If I remember right, walked it. And he's just like, Brent spent a lot more time with him than I did. I chit chat with him a little bit in the clubhouse, became an eight lunch or something, but nothing, you know, I tried to kind of stay out of his way, but he's just kind of like a brainiac type. He could walk the course once and remember every little subtle detail. And like I played it a thousand times and things that I never thought about, you know, he could remember pretty wild, but so he kind of put everything together, had some of his associates write up an estimate of what it would cost, um, what what exactly they wanted to do and why it needed to be done. And so next thing you know, Mr. Mr. Westheimer kicked in a sizable pledge, you know, and, and uh, we raised some money through the through the membership, raised money through some foundations here locally that, you know, just try to promote things in Ardmore um, for tourism, things like that. It all kind of fell together. So they they were able to do the irrigation bunkers, redo all the greens, green surrounds, did some tea boxes, did Brent and his crew did the tree clearing on their own. So they, they removed about 600 trees from the property, um, which sounds like a lot, but like hole three had like 230 trees on it, just that one hole. <laughs> It sounds like a ton of trees. And then you come out here today and you still see like right here, I can see a thousand trees where we're sitting. So they just kind of, you know, remove the ones that were bunched up together. And then you kind of reveal those trees that Maxwell had in mind when he built the course, the important trees, the natural native trees to this area. And you get rid of, I mean, they went through a time. I talked to some of the older members in the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, where members were literally like coming out to play golf and bringing a crepe myrtle with them and planting on the court. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of crazy. I mean, we're not the only course that that's happened to, but it's just, you look back at it and it's just crazy. You know, you've got, get people just doing crazy things. I mean, they did it because they thought it was a good idea, I'm sure. But 
then you come 50 years later and you've got 17 yard wide hitting areas, you know? And so it just got, it got really closed off out here and that's not at all what Maxwell intended when he, when he built this course. And so, and so Tom, he, he, he did it pro bono. I mean, he didn't make a dollar off of it, you know, and that's, that's really commendable that, that he would do that. And I mean, his time's pretty important, you know, he's wanted all over the world. And so that he would spend time in Ardmore, Oklahoma with 30,000 people, you know, to do that just out of respect to Perry Maxwell. It's pretty cool. I'm still kind of shocked it all came together, but it did. And so it was, it all happened quickly, so it was it was cool. They they started June first of last year, and we reopened December first. So it was it was a quick process. Yeah, yeah, very very cool. Yeah, and and yeah, as you mentioned, you know, definitely did come together pretty quickly. Well, we'll follow up on that. You know, Brent, for you, you know, Derek mentioned that you had a little bit more interaction probably than even he did with with Mister Doak. But uh, you know, what what was that process like? You know, and and now that the restoration has been completed, you know, what's it been like to maybe get back to a normal day to day? You know, whatever whatever normal may be. <laughs> well. I'll- I'll preview this question that Brent's now the, the general manager also. So nice. he gets to out who has too much salt on their French fries or who's, <laughs> who's steak, a little too done. And then he gets to worry about the golf course. So, <laughs> yeah. work, work, work big to small, yeah. right? Big to small. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was a pretty incredible experience um, from day one. Like Derek said, none of us, you know, we knew it was a possibility, but we knew it was also a pretty long shot. <laughs> if you would have asked me a couple years ago, or if you would have told me a couple years ago that I would be walking one of the most historic golf courses in the country with one of the greatest golf course architects of all time, planning on doing work to restore the work of another greatest architect of all time, I would have told you you were crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, the people Tom has working for him, Blake Conan, Eric Iverson, uh, they were awesome. Very involved. We'd go and hang out after work a bunch while they were here and um, kind of made some some good friends out of it to go along with everything else. And shout out to John Lytle with Total Turf out oh, of Pennsylvania. Yeah. Yeah. They were the, the contractors on it. They're they're the best around. They're they're awesome. Yeah, they did an amazing job. Yeah, just the way it all came together was pretty incredible. There were a million different things that could have derailed the whole project. And I think maybe the golf gods, you know, forced it to happen because like I said, a million different things could have derailed it. Yeah. But it all came together just, just perfectly. Yeah, it really is. Uh, really is a great story to be told, and I'm sure you guys will have the pleasure of telling it many times over. I, I am, I am kind of curious. We're we're gonna get to some kind of rapid fire on the different on the different holes at at Dornick, uh, but kind of an extension of or maybe a collaboration of questions that we've kind of talked about. What what Brent? What would you say? And maybe maybe give us one thing from each of you. Uh, we'll start with you, Brent. What do you What would you say for those who have been there before? And are coming back out. What's what's the biggest change uh, in your mind uh, from the from the restoration? Just the greens in general. Okay, you know that was Maxwell's defense to his golf course was his greens. And before, whenever when people would come out, 
they would say, oh man, that's a really cool property. And it is, it's an awesome property. But since we've reopened, most of the comments are on how cool the greens are. So that to me would be the biggest change. Yeah, I would, I would say the same as Brent and the, the greens and green surrounds, you know, they, they match now where before we had a lot of like moguls and it looks like it was set up for like a ski jumping competition (laughs) in certain spots, but they, they match really well now. And there's some, the cool thing about the course now is before it was, you know, it was tree lined. It, It was tough. Even though it wasn't long, it was tough because it was so narrow now I think it's still very challenging for the good players because the good players are hit most of the fairways anyway, but it's more enjoyable for the higher handicap. You're not chopping out of the trees all day. You still have to think about where you're going to place the ball, but if you pull your drive 10 yards, you're not in the trees making triple bogey. You've right. at least got a shot. It might be a hard shot, but you've at least got a shot. And I think the higher handicappers will really appreciate that. Still challenging, you know, and and of course we heard from some members that it's going to be too easy because, you know, because you don't have a little Bradford (laughs) hole or something. And, and uh, you know, the lowest score shot so far 67, which is three under par and it's not playing nearly as tough as it will later this year because you know, we're still in the process of getting the sod around the greens lowered to fairway height and things like that that'll make it tougher. Green, the greens are firm; they're not quite as fast as they will be. They're still good speed, um, but it's just going to get tougher. But um, Chris got her up from from the University of Oklahoma, shot a shot a sixty seven, nice. um, and then so I mean, he's shoot one of the best golfers in college golf yeah, right now, good. and that yeah. was their score <laughs> that day. So I mean, it's not. It's not the most, it's not Oakmont, you know, nor do we want to be Oakmont. We don't want people shooting a hundred every time they play, but it's challenging and fun at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and something I didn't mention earlier is um, we were nominated by Golf Digest for renovation of the year. Um, oh, so, so that's going to be a pretty cool, cool deal. I think they'll start doing their ratings this summer. I believe in June is kind of when they'll start coming out to look at it. Um, hopefully we get some good, good pub from that. Yeah. I think you will get a tremendous amount of publicity. And I think folks who, uh, you know, listen to this in the, in the short term and for many years to come, will be interested to see how it all played out to have Dornick be one of um, the best courses in America, really, so yeah, let's do some rapid fire. So you know, so okay. best you can here. You know, give us your give us your honest opinion. Uh, but we got we got to hold your feet to the fire. Uh, okay. you know, one or you know, kind of few word answers. We're gonna go just rapid fire on certain golf holes. So uh, we'll just kind of go back and forth. Uh, and let you guys both answer. Um, but with each one of these, uh, we'll let you start, Derek. So we're gonna start with hardest hole at Dornick Hills. Yeah, I think you got to go with 16. I mean, you see some huge numbers on that hole sometimes. So, um, agreed. Yeah. So, even though it's downwind normally, it's it's definitely the hardest, I think, day to day. Concurment from uh, from Mr. Waite is what I understand. Hole 16 is the hardest. Uh, All right. How about most fun hole to play? Ooh. I know my answer. I'll let Brennan answer first. (laughs) Oh. I really enjoy playing hole 11 now. 
it wasn't the most fun before, but I think it for me it is now. The shot into that green is probably one of the coolest visuals from down in the fairway with the the line of pearl bunkers running up the right side of the hole to a tiny little green with small little shelves on it. I'd go with number 14, the short par four. And I think it's, it's a lot of fun. It's like the perfect distance. It's like 280 from the back tee. And you'll see, I love like when we have junior tournaments or like a college event to watch behind that green, you'll see Eagles, you'll see quadruple bogeys. You see all kinds of stuff. I love that hole. It was a close contender for me also. (laughs) Yeah, I would, I would, uh, I'd probably concur with number 14. A short par four always, always gets us going. Um, all right. How about this one? Hold the hole that gets the most complaints about its handicap rating or the most complaints in general. Yeah, I'd say number four, which is the uphill par three. Um, cause it's, it's rated as a seven handicap hole, but you know, it par threes don't get rated out too too hard normally because they're one shot holes or should be one shot holes I guess but um, it's a beast especially it's like 190 to 200 from the back tee you're going uphill you've got a crosswind the green sets up like it's on a top of a volcano I mean it's mm-hmm. it's tough it, it, it's a really hard hole I would I would go with that one personally yeah I agree and then this will definitely be the the most him hawing question, I'm sure. But if you had to pick one, your favorite hole at Dornick Hills, I think I'll go number eleven again. Now, I was I was thinking it would be fourteen, and don't get me wrong, fourteen is very, very, very close. But just the way eleven sets up for my eye, I would. I would go with that too. I think going back up the hill, you can kind of see the clubhouse, you know, everything in the background. And the cool thing about that one, like a lot of uphill holes is you, you think you've hit a good shot. You really don't know exactly where it is until you get up to the green, you know? So, and there's a little kind of a backstop behind it. That'll be mowed kind of short. And so you might think you're over the green and you're four feet from the hole or, or the opposite of that, you know? So we all, um, we also have a really cool old photo from twenties or thirties of that hole. And they built it just perfectly. It's amazing that stuff like that can stand the test of time. Now, really cool stuff there, guys. Um, you know, kind of getting away from the golf course per se and maybe a little bit more behind the scenes at the club there, you know, our listeners, they, they always love hearing about, you know, notably famous guests who have played a particular course. And so, you know, maybe maybe yeah. do a little name dropping here for our listeners, guys. Not necessarily golfers per se, but uh, any any celebrities that have came through yeah. Ardmore in the last year or so. Usually not a name dropper, but I'm going to make an exception today. Um <laughs> Uh, the most, the most famous, in my opinion, was Tom Watson, who oh, I got, wow. I cool. got really lucky and got to play golf with him that day. So that was pretty, pretty awesome. He was eating lunch and came in and was like, "Hey, we need a fourth. Do you want to play?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm in, buddy." So, <laughs> yeah. On the first tee, he he was. We were playing from the same tees, of course, and he's like, well, you should probably give me, I think he said, like, two aside because you know the course better than I do. And I was like, well, your Wikipedia page is a little lengthier than mine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, your five uh, British Opens would disagree. Yeah, yeah, he's an awesome guy. He really was. It was cool to watch. 
Um, and then, so like the OG, OJDT, um, Red River Challenge we have every fall there at Windstar last year because we were shut down, but they'll be back this year. But they've had a ton, you know, Jordan Speed, Patrick Reed, and Will Zalatoris, and of course all the Oklahoma guys, Taylor Moore, Taylor Gooch, Kevin Tway, Streb, all those guys played in that. Um, in the Maxwell College Tournament. That, that we used to have and maybe one day we can we can get that back out here but you had scotty scheffler Duvall, jim Furyk, kisner i mean there was a hundred you know guys that are on tour played on tour and so a few a few weeks ago we had a kind of an inside joke at the club but one of the members that calls me he's just kind of a class clown type guy but he called me one day and this helicopter had just flown over. One of our members has some property close by and flew their helicopter real low to the course. And he called me and was like, Hey, whose helicopter was that? And I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to kind of keep it on the DL, but uh, George Bush is coming out at 120 to play with one of our national members. Um, but, you know, just kind of keep it on the DL. I'm not wanting a lot of attention, you know, around him. And <laughs> so by the time they make the turn, there's guys coming in like, there was a guy that came from his office and heard from another guy's wife that George Bush is out here. And like, it spread like wildfire. It was awesome. <laughs> but, but people were believing it. Like they even were like, I think we saw him on old seven, you know, they're like trying to pick out where he's at. Plant that seed. Yeah. <laughs> Start seeding. I had to let him know it wasn't, it wasn't true, but it, it went on for four hours or so. So it spread around pretty good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. I, I actually, I had it in my notes from one of your uh, fellow members to ask you about the time that George W visited the club. So <laughs> thanks for that. Would have been Daniel Vernon, by that, that would have been the Vern. Yes. I had a sneaky, <laughs> sneaky suspicion. <laughs> <laughs> so shout out to our man, RD Vern, uh, oh, giving yeah. us the insider knowledge, uh, there at Dornick. Gentleman and a scholar. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, man, this has been awesome guys. We really appreciate your time. I, for one, being you know Perry Maxwell nut, uh, I'm deep into the history of Dornick Kills and just a, truly appreciate the caretaking that you guys are doing there um, to such a gem in uh, not only Oklahoma golf history, but I think just Oklahoma history in general. Absolutely. So really appreciate yeah. your time. And um, it goes without saying, we can't wait to get down there and check it out in person. Yeah, absolutely. Come see us. Can I make one more shout out? Please do. Absolutely. None of this would have been possible without the formation of the Dornick Hills Historical Foundation, which is a 501c3 that was put together a few years ago to help because Dornick Hills is, is such a, we're on the National Register of Historic Landmarks. And, you know, the, this group felt it was necessary and appropriate to try to do everything that they could to help this place survive and thrive. And without that, and it's something that anybody can donate any amount of money to, but that, that was really the saving grace to all of this. Yep. Very cool. And we will be here, sure here. to uh, tweet that out and uh, provide our listeners with uh, information on that foundation. So yeah, very cool stuff there. Perfect. Well, guys, again, uh, echo uh, J Till sentiments here. Can't appreciate your time enough. Know that you guys have a pretty busy schedule right now, but uh, really looking forward to uh, talking again soon and, uh, and more importantly, getting down to Ardmore and uh, playing the great Dornick Hills. Yeah, look forward to seeing you guys here. Let us know and uh, anytime. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Okay. Thank you. See y'all. And that will conclude episode one of our Miles of Maxwell series. 
Again, big thanks to Derek and Brent for sharing some stories and a little bit of time with us. Uh, We really did enjoy that, and we hope you, the listeners, enjoyed it as well. So more episodes to come in our Miles of Maxwell series, so be sure to follow along at YSOGolf at sports underscore pros to be getting all the updates for all the episodes in this fantastic series. Looking forward to the next one. Get out there and enjoy the walk.